Good evening, and welcome to episode 99 of The Winning Agenda. Uh, my name is Jesse Marshall, and with me tonight is, well, it's actually morning here, so I don't know why I'm saying tonight, it's forced to have it, but anyway, with me this morning is the 2016 National Champion of Australian Netrunner, Wilfred E. Horrig. Hi, good. Uh, I think it's the talk show thing, you know, you record in the evening, and then uh, loyal listeners get to listen to it while they're relaxing in bed or something. Yeah. We'll go with that. Um, so, how are you on this bright, sunny evening? Uh, yes, uh, the sun is surprisingly bright given the time of day. Um, and <laughs> I won nationals, which I'm sure everyone has heard about maybe 16 times by now. Uh, but if you haven't, well, uh, you can be informed on our podcast. You, no one can ever say that we're not up to date. No, that's right. Um, and unfortunately, uh, as we have for the last few weeks, we have to note the unfortunate absence of our dear friend and host, uh, the big bad wolf, Brian Holland, uh, who is sorting a few things out upon his return from the United States, where he terrorized uh, many a person during the full moon. Um, but unfortunately, he has been unable to return to our podcast this week. He will be back next week, of course, for our episode 100 extravaganza. So you can look forward to hearing his dulcet tones again then. Uh, but until then, you're stuck with Wilfie and I, and we're going to be running through uh, the Nationals experience uh, of Australian Nationals, uh, what, how we went on the day, how we prepared for the day, and also taking a range of questions from our wonderful Patreon supporters who have sent us in a range of questions that they want us to answer um, on a, a range of topics about nationals and also about the Sand Sand Finals, which we, uh, was the Australian ANRPC circuit, uh, the finals of which we ran the day after nationals. So, Wilfie, uh, we will start off with you, and if you wouldn't mind taking us through sort of your testing process and then into the Swiss rounds and the top cut. But we'll start off with uh, your testing process. How did you go about preparing? Sure, yeah, so that's a fairly extensive um, list of topics to cover. So starting with testing is probably good. We'll just start with the testing process, and then I'll I'll throw you some more questions. Yeah, we'll go chronologically. (laughs) That's probably good. So uh, I think the testing process I used, or at least tried to use, was the gauntlet uh, method that I, uh, I guess, have advocated for a while at because I think it's probably the best way to manage the fact that you have quite limited times to play games, especially if you want to get actual um, sample sizes that allow you to generate um, conclusions about matchups. Like, it's really difficult to say, I'm going to play 10 games of each matchup that I think will be common, um, and repeat this throughout every iteration as you change your deck or the meta evolves. So I think that it's a little better to, if you're going to focus, to focus on the common decks and the common matchups um, and get a wider feel for how each deck plays against the other one, even if you don't necessarily have the nuances of how each matchup goes. And that's very important, I think, nowadays to understand what your strategy is going to be um, in each common matchup not just in how you're going to win the game, but also how you're going to approach each stage of the game. And I think that's become maybe a bit more prominent nowadays, but we'll talk about that, that a bit later. So basically, um, the gauntlet process has two steps. The first step is a kind of exploratory stage where I looked, I guess, to ground this chronologically, I kind of started uh, around the time that Blood Money was released, which would have been maybe a month ago now, I think. And yeah, I think yeah. About that. And so 
what I did is I scoured uh, the results that we had on the internet. I think UK Nationals would have been the most recent tournament when I started this process. Uh, and if you can see my, and if you could see my Jinteki.net uh, decklist screen, it's just a bunch of decks saying Nats Gauntlet name, Nats Gauntlet name, Nats Gauntlet name. <laughs> so kind of the point is to get a wide variety of decks that I think would be reasonable choices to take to a tournament and then narrow them down until I've worked out what I think has the best choice and then from there the second stage after the exploratory stage is kind of the confirmatory stage where we try and work out uh, the ins and outs of the particular decks that I want to take against the common decks in the field and sort of confirm that the ideas that we stumbled upon in the exploratory stage kind of hold up when we're going to play a tournament. And uh, aside from coining a new word in confirmatory, is that another word? I thought that like I've uh, (laughs) that's been used in research before. I think that's not a new thing. I think Uh, that's fine. Whatever. I'm sure our listeners will uh, find out and let us know. Um, uh, Once you get from the exploratory stage to the stage where you're confirming uh, your findings, do you narrow it down to one deck, or are there still multiple decks that you're considering on either side? Um, I think the ideal way to start the confirmatory stage... Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's a word. I'm going to look it up after this episode, but that's okay. Uh, chime in in the comments. <laughs> um, but I think the ideal thing, especially given the limited amount of time and how complex um, most matchups are to gain an understanding uh, of in detail, I see the confirmatory stage as kind of starting when you've chosen your decks. So I I place a lot of, a bit more emphasis on choosing my decks fairly early because I like to have a, uh, I I mean, I don't like to go into the tournament feeling unpracticed, but... Yeah, and I I think that is something that has come out a little bit more, as you say, recently with the importance of knowing how how your deck performs in each phase of each game in each common matchup. There's a lot of eaches there. But basically, you want to know when you go into any game and you see your opponent's ID and you quickly, from their first couple of turns, get some idea of what strategy they're on. Uh, You want to know how optimally to play out your game. And you can sort of know that at the moment because builds are sort of concentrating, particularly, I don't know why, in the blood money meta, but builds seems to concentrate around a few core strategies on either side. Would you say that? Uh, Yeah, and so I think... The point of, yeah, so yeah, I definitely think that's true. And I don't think it's necessarily the case that I, I'd say it's always the right idea to lock in your decks way in advance. But the whole point of, you know, getting a feel with every deck while you're exploring the format is so that if in the confirmatory stage, if things aren't going well and you need to change, then you, you're not just starting from, uh, square zero, square one or whatever where you don't have any idea how to play a deck, you don't have any idea how to play against a deck, uh, ideally you have absorbed enough from playing against that deck uh, and playing with that deck while you still w- weren't sure what to do that you can switch to that deck if necessary. So I kind of look at it like I have one set of decks that I want to play, but then I have a sort of narrower pool of options like compared to every deck in the format, I have a narrower 
And you get experience with those decks by playing against them. Exactly. As well, don't you? I guess yeah, that's that's, that's very yeah. important. But yeah, I would say that you have a narrow pool of options um, as sort of second, uh, not necessarily your first choice, but if your first choice doesn't go well, you're okay to switch to your second choice, and then that'll become your first choice. Mm. But I try and minimize. Uh, of course, sometimes you have to do it, so I can't say that. You know, it's never right to do it. In fact, I I guess famously, I'll say that in air quotes. <laughs> did that last year at Nationals where I switched to a deck that I hadn't even sleeved up before that day. Um, yeah. And that worked out Yeah, and that did well. work out well. But I think the reason it worked out well is because I'd played enough of that format that I could make an informed decision as to whether it would be good to do that or not. Mm. Now, I think one other thing that I wanted to mention on the on our gauntlet testing process is on that first stage, the exploratory stage. Um, it is really, really difficult to get enough data and enough experience given the limited time that we all have in our lives with other commitments to really make any strong determinations about what's really good scientifically. You sort of have to trust your gut a lot, uh, trust some really limited sample sizes and trust some particular card interactions in some instances, like, oh, I can't deal really well with X, so I feel like that matchup is really not going to go well for me a lot of the time, even though you haven't actually um, borne that out in any sort of model by playing out games. So did you find that the given the limited time we had, that that exploratory stage was a bit limited? Um, and if so... How do you feel that people can overcome that if they are a bit Yeah, I agree completely. And I was going to say, or did say, like, yeah, I was going to say exactly what you said. Then, in the like, that it's very hard to actually um, get enough reps with a deck to kind of work out whether or not you are okay to play it, like, with a good idea of what it actually does. So you kind of have to use some shortcuts. One shortcut that I find very important is to compare it to other decks that you've played in the past or um, other similar formats which might... Oh, you know, similar meta games in the past which might have borne out in similar ways. Um, and also yeah. to just read a bunch of stuff on the internet since that's you can kind of do that um, when you don't have time to play games. I hang out on Slack all the time, even though sometimes I wouldn't exactly call it a repository of strategic information, it is very good to just see what people, someone will ask, what do they think this matchup is like, and someone else will, will answer with their findings. So, you know, if you can kind of vet out the good answers from the bad ones, then it's very easy to get a lot of uh, not-so-deep data, but very broad data fairly efficiently and quickly. Um and I think that's a really important distinction you've drawn that you don't necessarily have to take on board something someone else says. So just because someone writes an article, X deck is bad or X deck is the best deck in the format, you don't have to trust that. But if they go into a bit more detail and say, I really like this deck because in these situations it serves me well, um, say it's they say it's really good against hard-hitting news and it deals well with that for these reasons, then you go about your exploratory stage of your gauntlet and you're testing a deck and you find you're losing to hard-hitting news a lot it means that in the back of your mind you can be thinking, well, that other person said they tried this other deck, it worked really well in these situations, maybe if I was playing that deck it would work better. And that sort of shortcutted you and meant that you can kind of say, well, the deck that I'm playing now doesn't deal very well with this situation. I think that other one will deal better. You can maybe play one or two games and if you find that that's borne out, then you've sort of 
taken a whole lot of time out of your testing process because you didn't have to come up with the solution yourself. You didn't have to test it a whole lot to find out if it was good. You just had to sort of confirm someone else's exactly. findings. Uh, yeah, what you said is perfectly correct. And I think good testing is about syn- synthesizing all these sources of information and kind of working out how to uh, draw the best insights with in the least time. Yeah. So how did you specifically, now that we've sort of outlined the general process, how did you specifically go about that and how did you end up with the decks that you... Very, very good playing? question. So I'll start with, for those who don't know, I played a conventional Dumblefork deck. Uh, actually, I'll probably post them. We'll post them in the show notes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you can just look below or I don't know how, whatever the program you use to access this great podcast is, but presumably you can just look below. And so on the runner side, yeah, I played a conventional Dumblefork deck. I started off with, um, Je- with Jesse, you sent me a Dumblefork list that was a bit different. I mean, I want, it was a bit different, but it's not like it was a bit different from the one you had before. It was just like an evolution of the one you had before, which already started off a bit different from the conventional list, right? Yeah. Um, and so I kind of, uh, decided that the conventionally list would be a bit better, not uh, it kind of happened organically. Jesse decided to cut Dirty Laundry, and then in every game I played against Hardy and used decks, I think, well, Dirty Laundry actually doesn't seem like it would be very good because it forces you to run when sometimes you don't have to run, but also you need to run to be able to deal with uh, CTM's first asset on turn one especially. So I found that being able to play Dirty Laundry, no matter what the rest of my hand was, was very essential to that matchup. Um, so, yeah, my list on that side wasn't too different from anything you might have seen uh even in the pre mwl2 meta the deck really hasn't changed that much which is i guess in some ways a good thing some ways a bad thing a good thing for me because i'd played that deck a fair bit in that previous meta game and i could apply most of the knowledge here with the one exception that you didn't have to deal with astro scoring astro anymore um and some other minor things but so I basically I decided I I had a few runner decks I was mainly deciding between. Uh, I think the standouts to me were this was a deck and um the Temujin regular Temujin Andromeda deck that um I think I had the Kalimsha list, but you know I think most of the lists are fairly similar. How do you find that found that to be the case? Yeah, I. Tested between um, the wizard list and, as you said, took out Dirty Laundry because I assumed it would have a bad hard-hitting news interaction. But as we played out that matchup quite a lot, that was probably the matchup that we played uh, the yeah, most. Yeah, I would say definitely. Um, CTM and wizard. Um, yeah, I, I, I found that contesting the remotes early was just so important. And I always knew that you couldn't leave the political assets, but I guess I didn't realize how frequently you would have to make runs on turns one and two um, in order to do that and it turned out to be almost every game because they can just mulligan for those cards because they're the best cards to have on turn one and two um so yeah having dirty laundry back in the deck meant that you could use your wizard credits and still not fall too far behind on the hard-hitting news trace because you're condensing the run the trash which is essentially free because your wizard credits um and your sure gamble effectively almost, from Dirty Laundry, into one click, which can be really important on those first couple of turns. So having that back in was really good. But yeah, so in terms of what else was good, the the Wizard deck was really good, and once we settled on that, 
testing that matchup was really important for me. Like, um, Wilfie and I probably played, I don't know, 20 games, maybe a few more with that matchup, plus I played more online, um, trying to really nail down what the pressure points were and how to go about playing that that game. Um, the other decks I tried out were a Temujin Annie deck, which I didn't really like, possibly because I came up against a lot of HB decks and a lot of other decks that could actually lock out my Temujin, and um, I also found it, if I didn't get together testing Temujin and Desperado, uh, I could still fall behind, um, plus... I found that if I ever got closed accounts, it was really, 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 really miserable. Um, and I'll go into that a little bit more when I talk about my sync deck, because I, because I anticipated a lot of people would play Temujin Andy, and I realized how good um, closed accounts was against it, I played a deck that I thought could land the closed accounts a little bit more, but I'll come to that later. Um, and on the, the other deck I tried on the runner side was Kate. Uh, I tried to uh, um, update the stealth list to deal a little more with um, CTM. So included slums again, which I had had in previously for IG, um, networking, and New Angeles City Hall. And that turned out okay, but it just wasn't as fast as the other two options. Yeah, so if I'm just looking through my Jinteki decks now, and I think it's a fairly good like uh, record of history, of the history of how I went about testing. So we have sort of, I guess we'll focus on the runner side now and then go to the corp side later. Um, I started with DLR Max, D. Uh, I can't speak today. DLR Max um, from American Nationals. Uh, prepaid voice pad, Kate, which... Uh, so I played some... I guess I'll go over them one by one just quickly. I played some games with the Max deck, but I just didn't really think that uh, it was a very good choice in this format, just because lots of people... Everyone knew what you were doing, so you were very rarely landed free siphons. And it just found, felt like the deck ran out of steam way too easily because all your opponent's cards matched up really well against you. It, before, I think, in the previous, when this deck was previously good, it felt like it was one turn faster than the other decks. Now I think it felt like it was one turn slower. Yeah. Yep. So DLR was out the window. Yep. Uh, this prepaid voice pad Kate deck, uh, I actually only played two, like, maybe a handful of games with any sort of shaper less than 10, 10 games in total with Shapers before my opponent played Sensi on turn 1. I killed it and then got hard hitting used and then never recovered and then I scrapped the deck, the faction entirely, honestly. Yeah. yeah. I, like, I know yeah. you can do things <laughs> against that, but just it felt, compared to... if I Given that I felt that uh, dealing with assets on turn 1 and turn 2 were the most important qualities in a runner deck, not just from CDM... Um, but I think most of the good corp decks wanted to, were about controlling the board early and trying to build early rather than mm. later. Um, would you, is that what you found as well? Yeah, I think so. I think there is a shaper strategy that works, but shapers are still the worst faction of dealing with tags, um, I believe. So you... Worst and best in some ways. Like now, you can have a resi- uh, tag resilient shaper deck in the sense that you've got Mopus and programs, um, and that you don't really care that much about tags other than dying, um, because closed accounts isn't very good against Mopus. But there are still tag punishment cards that you do care about, like Quantum Predictive Model. So it, the way, only way to deal with that is Film Critic. So I found that the best shaper strategy was to sort of go Mopus, click three times, and then just Mopus, 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 then trash your stuff and try not to care too much about. Um, getting traced because your Mopus is always going to outdo any co-op economy. Um, 
the problem with that sort of strategy is you do have to give up those first couple of turns. And if they go double bankers um, or bankers sensi, they get to fire it at least once, possibly twice, um, depending on how good their economy's been and whether you're still going to be behind if you do trash those and fight the traces or read the tags. So you're probably giving them, you're definitely giving them one, probably giving them two turns of their assets. And then is that enough for them to get ahead of you? Um, a lot of the time it is. And even then later in the game, you have to rely on clot to stop them from scoring the breaking users, um, which is something that people can play around. So like clot's not a universal solution. Uh, and you have to rely on being able to get into their remotes and they can still close accounts you and lock down a remote. If it's a toll booth or something like that, it can be really hard for you to get to in one turn and or they can bluff you out with things like Data Raven and QPM and stop you from bidding them that way. So I still felt like it was trying to play regular Netrunner from a little bit behind where you really wanted to be in terms of speed Um and yes, you had some tools like Clot and uh, Mopus that dealt really, really well with the threats that the N NBN decks were putting out, but it just wasn't guaranteed that you were going to be able to overcome them in terms of speed. Yeah, I the like from my experience, I found that it's it was okay to give up the first couple turns if your hand was good, like if you got Opus early. But if your hand was just bad, you had no chance of winning. Like if your strategy is to give them their um you know, early economy, then you have to make sure that your late game is going to be better than theirs. And the setup time is just so huge if your hand wasn't good that I didn't find that to be the case. Yeah. So I think it's probably worth pointing out at this stage that all these decks that we tried and then sort of dismissed doesn't mean we think they're bad decks and doesn't mean that we think they would have lost every game or anything like that. But what we were looking for in the lead up to a tournament like Nationals was the deck that's going to give us the best chance to win in every matchup. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I think that most of these decks are perfectly playable. And I faced most of most of the decks I did try out, I faced at least one of on the day. Um, yeah. And the, the other thing that's worth saying is that it comes down to personal preference a lot, isn't it? So the, the decks that we tested with more in that exploratory stage, we were probably biased towards wanting to play more because we had more experience with them. And then once you get to the conf confirmation stage, if you... It's definitely a word. <laughs> I looked it up just there. <laughs> yeah. uh, the fact that you've already got a lot of experience means that you're more biased towards playing that deck and it has to actually, in order for you to then put that deck aside and go for something else, there has to be a very strong yeah, reason. Yeah, definitely. Um, like, I feel like if I'd come from the perspective that I had been playing, like, uh, to take an example, um, Blackmail Valencia with Regular Breakers, which is the deck that I have, I'm looking at now on my Jinteki screen, um, then I could have easily come to a stage where I... Yeah, if I had been playing it for ages and I knew, you know, what to do in most situations, I could have easily come to the conclusion that it was the deck to play. Yeah. Um, all right, so we might then move on from our preparation um, to the actual day itself. And I guess we might try and bring in some of our listener and or Brian questions here. So Brian's put in a couple of questions as well. Um, and before we get to the Swiss rounds themselves, we've got from Brian and Alexis a couple of questions about our deck choices. Um, so Brian asks, how did you predict the meta? Um, and what would you change in your decks if you could have your time over again? So I guess we'll start with you, Wilfie. Um, how did you think that we went about as a group predicting the meta? 
um, and what what changes would you have made to your list um, if you could? So in terms of predicting the meta, I think that uh, the gauntlet testing process was pretty good. I think we had a good read on what decks were playable. Um, I think on the corp side, which we didn't talk about too much, I'll just say briefly that I originally didn't want to play Controlling the Message because I thought that it was kind of a week one deck, like it would be good for the first week of a format, but then once you had decks just swarming with hate cards, it would suddenly become an uphill battle to win every game. Um, and that's quite a um, severe difference between week one and week two, but that sometimes happens when the deck is so linear that basically any deck, any playable deck can put in as many hate cards as it wants against it. But then once, as I started to play it a bit more, I realized it was actually quite resilient and um, it wasn't, and yeah, it wasn't so much that your opponent had infinite hate cards because even if they did have the hate cards, they weren't all useful in every stage of the game. And as a CTM player, you could sort of minimize the effectiveness of your opponent's hate cards. So I decided... I think the word you used was broken. Oh, yeah, yeah, I did think say it was broken. I don't know, just like, I don't think it's completely (laughs) broken. But I do think it was... This was before the oh, day, by the way, everyone. Yeah. Wolfie, was, Wolfie was telling me that... The oh, yeah, that's right. Well, that was because I kept on, like, yeah. winning all the time. But, like, it's the kind of thing where <laughs> half the games you don't even feel like are close. Which doesn't necessarily mean the deck is better if you have half the games that you feel like you can't ever lose and some percentage of the games you can't feel you feel like you can't ever win. That's the same as winning or losing close games. But it definitely feels better. <laughs> yes, it does. Um, and it probably mentally feels better. Uh, in a tournament setting yes, as well. Yes, but that sort of stuff could be a whole episode by itself. Mm. So you you felt like we predicted the meta pretty well. I guess I'll just quickly say on my corp deck, I ended up choosing to play Sync. Um, and I mentioned a little bit earlier that one of the reasons for that was in the Temujin Andy matches when I was playing as the deck and against it. I felt that having an out as the NBN player, either CTM or Sync, it was important to be able to close to counts them, even if they got ahead of you on money. So I got in the lead up to nationals, probably in the last three or four days, I played quite intensively with both of those decks and a lot of the matchups were against Temujin Andy. And I found that having the 24-7 in the sync deck uh, meant that I was able to close to counts them a little bit more proactively and I really liked that. So even though the sync deck wasn't as powerful, uh, could basically never score a GFI uh, off the board had to um, exchange of information them, uh, which meant that if your opponent was playing data dealer or another uh, way to forfeit agendas, you were in a lot of trouble because they could basically just forfeit away all your stuff and you could never win and you just get decked. Uh, so that was a risk, but I sort of thought that hate was a little less likely than the networking um, slums hate for CTM, and that proved to be the case on the day, so I was a little bit lucky there. But what I did find was that for the sync in the sync deck's favor was the fact that if you could land the exchange sorry the 24 7 closed accounts you could then pretty much do whatever you want behind data ravens and other ice because your opponent couldn't afford to get tagged because you just exchange stuff um and or keep doing stuff uh, other terrible stuff to them all seeing eyes and i even had a scorch death in there um and then you could, you know, score out some agendas behind there. I also had two QPMs in the deck, which allowed me to come back from behind quite a lot, because not only did that punish medium digs as long as you had a data raven on R&D, but it also gave you some really good plays in remote servers behind data ravens and things like that, where your opponent gets taxed out pretty heavily. You run them through an expensive remote with a dart, one or two data ravens on it, um, and then you actually get to score the agenda at the end of it and 
possibly exchange them out. So, I, I yeah, I, I guess that the Sync deck had some different plays to CTM. It wasn't as powerful overall, but I felt like it rewarded uh, play skill and um, putting your opponent in some difficult situations a little more. Like, if you could see your outs, then you could play to them and your opponent wouldn't necessarily know what they were. And I guess that was a decision that I made that I would rather play a deck like that than a deck that was more powerful, but people knew what was going on. Um, yeah, and I'm exactly the opposite. <laughs> I'm completely happy to play the level one strategy if I s- still think that, you know, in lots of the games, even if your opponent does know what's going on, it's very hard. Like I said before, it's very possible to minimize the effectiveness of your opponent's cards, even if they do have cards that are good against you, even with a linear strategy. Yeah, and I think that that probably um, shows just the slight difference in the way that Wilfie and I approach tournaments generally is that I'll often go for that strategy that I feel will put my opponent off a little more or they won't necessarily know what's going on, whereas Wilfie will often just look for what's the best and what's the most powerful. And neither of those, I think, is correct, but they both have slightly different outcomes. Um, Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, And, yeah, this episode seems to be a bit... Uh, fertile for discussions. I suppose that's kind of the nature of it. Um, but I was just thinking that, yeah, this could be another five episodes or whatever of just talking about this sort yeah. of stuff. But we'll leave it well, to the... Thankfully, we have infinite time in the future. Yeah, we'll leave it to the things. topics we'll for now. Infinite. infinite in your case, limited to a human lifespan. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> uh, so we'll move on to the, the next question, which comes from Alexis, one of our Patreon supporters. And Alexis asks, why didn't you play Wayland Sadface? Uh, should I go? Or you should uh, go. I can assume that, I assume that that's directed yeah. at me, uh, Alexis. Um, and the reason is, well, partly I got a bit burned last year because I went through the gauntlet process and I had two decks, foolishly, that I was happy to play. One was Argus and one was NEH. And I knew that NEH was a better deck and I ended up going with the strategy I just spoke about and going for something that I thought would put people off. Yeah, and... Gave Wilfie my NEH deck, and I played the Argus yeah, and deck. I was, yeah, and, I was just um, going to say, yeah, and I thought that the uh, Nerath Hub deck was so good that I literally switched to it without having sleeved it up before, the day before the tournament. Yeah, um, and that turned out to be a foolish decision. So, I think there was probably a little more to that decision that I made the year before and in that I liked the Argus deck. I felt sort of like a little bit of pride about it, I suppose. Like I liked the way that it worked and I felt like I'd put something together that I really enjoyed playing. Uh, and it just wasn't as good. Basically you got into a lot more situations where you just couldn't come back and win the game. And I still felt that that was true about Argus today. If I was going to play a Wayland deck, it was going to be Argus. It was going to be a variant of that same deck I played and the year Brian before. And that Brian played this year. And that Brian played this year and played last year. Um, and I think that Brian and I had sort of played it so much in the meta that people did know what was going on. So that surprise factor, firstly, wasn't there at all. Um, secondly, it just wasn't as powerful as the NBN options. It was trying to do a similar thing to what they were doing, but not as powerfully. Um and I th- there was something in its favour in that Prytech had just come out, um, a card which, as we noted, is inexplicably not Wayland, um, although we do note the, the flavour reasons that have been communicated to us, somewhat flimsy, but there you go. Um, so Prytech had just come out, and that is a good card in that deck, but not nearly as good 
not nearly good enough to make the deck consistent. Yeah, I mean, um, in fact, Price Hack is just not a terribly consistent. It's good card. in that deck, and it's also good in all the NBN decks. <laughs> for some reason. Yeah. In fact, I was playing one in the Sync deck. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, sorry, Alexis didn't end up um, playing Wayland. Definitely considered it. Definitely tested the Argus deck with Price Hack in the lead up, but just found that it wasn't consistent enough compared to the NBN decks. Any thoughts of playing Wayland yourself? Um, well, I actually did try the Argus, same Argus deck for a bit, but I just, yeah, found the same thing, that it was kind of weak to the similar sort of cards that were good against the MBN decks, but a lot more of the time you were just playing, starting from the back foot rather than ahead. Uh, our next... Uh, next, I thought we'd just go on and quickly talk about the, the Swiss rounds, Wilfie, and how the decks performed for you in the Swiss rounds, because our, our next listener questions, uh, sorry, Patreon supporter questions, uh, pertain more to the top cut. So, how did the Swiss rounds turn out for you, and how did you feel about the decks and how they performed? Um, so the Swiss rounds, I wasn't so lucky as to have a buy, uh, like some people on this podcast. <laughs> uh, maybe I need to do some <laughs> more winning, but uh, disregarding that... Uh, yeah, actually, my in my first two rounds, I was. Uh, I guess I'll just go say quickly that my two choice on the corp side, I'd basically resolved to play uh, CTM from maybe two or three weeks out, just because I thought it was by far the best choice. Um, I actually thought the next best deck was the forty nine card uh, genomics deck, but I felt like there was no way I could learn to play that uh, in an efficient time frame f- for it to be a good choice for me at nationals, and that's I think a fairly valid point given that the CDM deck in comparison is extremely easy um that if you know if you do that you get to maximize the amount of time you get learning com- uh important and complex comp- important and complex things rather than um not so uh more surface level stuff which you do when you play. I, I will say oh, though yeah. Wilfie like when when you when you say that CTM's an easy deck to play you did play a decent chunk of games with it. So it probably seemed a lot easier to you at the end than it would have at the oh, start. Oh, sure, but I think, I think still that... in comparison to 49-card IG, which, like, because I said that that was the next best deck, in my opinion, right? Best. Yeah. So I yeah. think the dis- difficulty disparity between those two decks is fairly large. Possibly. I, I guess the point I- I'm trying to make is that I think the... Um, in... Perhaps you can get to a rudimentary level of, or a good level of um, familiarity and play skill with the um, CTM deck a little easier than with the IG deck. But I think that playing against you with the CTM deck was almost so different as to be playing against a different deck as compared to playing against some other people with the CTM deck because you were so familiar with it. You knew how to deal with the wizard matchups so well, um, and other matchups as well, but that just happened to be the deck that I was playing. And I think that makes a ton of difference in terms of the actual outcome of the game. Like, the fact that you knew your deck so well, you knew the CTM deck so well, um, and made particular decisions in the early turns where those games are often decided just meant that it was like a completely different matchup to playing against some other people. Right, yeah. I'm definitely... Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I'm definitely not trying to claim yeah. that uh you know you your the testing process is invalid because the deck is easy i just mean that 
when I thought that the two decks were of similar power level. One, I had a lot more experience with decks of that style before, and I thought it was easier in general, and the other I thought was maybe a little worse and also a little more difficult. Those things in combination made me not really want to play the IG49 deck. I, I would just I just thought I would mention it because we hadn't talked about it before. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So you didn't play that? And how yeah, this was <laughs> so uh, I guess kind of snaking <laughs> back to our topic. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I decided to play Wizard instead of Stealth Andy, even though I thought it had a bit worse CTM matchup because I thought it was better in uh, a lot of other matchups, especially against the da- decks with uh, net or mid damage. Not just the decks that were trying to kill you with Scorched Earth, but also the decks with Psychic Field or Snare. Um, mainly because uh, Wild Side and I've had worse give you so much more flexibility in those matchups to actually make decisions that disrupt your opponent's game plan. Whereas I think the Stealth Andy deck, apart from Siphon, is a little more restricted in that sense. Um, yeah. So, and that kind of paid off when I played against two damage decks where I've had worse saved me or whatever, um, in the first two rounds. So, so the first round was an Argus list and the second round was, was... a Blue Sun. Yep. Okay. Um, and yeah, so that, and you hit some snares and some other little bits and pieces uh, along the way? I, yeah, against Argus I hit a... Yeah, against both decks I hit snares, actually. <laughs> I seem to like face planting into snare, so... Um, yep. Um, and you also... Was there some Scorched Earth or meat damage coming? Uh, I believe there well was. I think matches? there was one turn... Oh, yeah, that happened in the third round where I got 24-7 trafficked, but my opponent hit, missed my iPad worse, so I died, but... I think against those kind of decks, uh, at, uh, the, I, I said Stealth Andy just out of habit, but I meant Temujin Andy. Um, yeah. The Temujin Andy deck has a bit less game just because, uh, you know, you have a little less interaction on that front. Like, you, you know, mm. you have no imp or any way to trash operations, so you kind of have to race them before they hit 24-7 Scorch traffic, which is fairly difficult, I think. Yeah. Um, so you were pretty happy with how Wizard performed. Was it so six yeah, rounds? So did Wizard six go six rounds? I lost against the Near Earth Hub kill deck um, that I got twenty four seven in. Uh, I won my next two. I won my next round, and then I I did twice. I think so. Wizard won three games, lost one, and then I did twice in the Swiss rounds. Mm-hmm. And my CTM deck didn't drop a game all day. Okay. So CTM was really good in the Swiss rounds. Was, was there anything that it, uh, any matchups that you weren't expecting uh, for CTM deck, or did everything? Uh, not really. I played against uh, some wizards, some Leelas, um, some Kates, some the Magnum Opus Kate deck, um, and some other stuff that I can't remember now. But nothing that I thought was outside of the scope of what I had. Um, you know, been testing for, and I found that my strategy with CDM was, which was basically to just mulligan for a political asset. That's the most important card to have in your opening hand. Play as many assets as possible on turn one. Play an ice, if necessary, if you think they might have siphon or medium, but otherwise completely ignore your centrals uh, in the early turns and just try and get ahead on the board and force them to trash an asset every turn. That was what I tried to do, and it worked out well. Like, there were a couple games where my opponent just let me was forced basically because of the threat of hard hitting news and uh, closed accounts or just 
anything really to let me have Sensi from turn two or turn three, which just I think doesn't really end up that well unless you're you have to be really committed to making sure that you can win in the late game. And if you start doing that in turn two or turn three, it's very, very hard to win. Mm. So you mentioned their IDs, and one of our questions was from our Patreon supporter, Simon, um, who said, after the discussion last week, any comments about IDs on the day? Uh, did you feel that they affected the tournament? The good, bad, and different? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, would you like uh, to see So that this page? was actually the first tournament I had played in where IDs were A, both legal, were both A, legal, and B, relevant. Um, and I think after having seen it in practice, I don't want to open this can of worms like too much, but after having seen it in practice, I think it is a net negative just because um, in terms of the distribution of variance on your results, it's generally going to be a good idea since you know in lots of situations it's a good idea, some situations it's not, but those situations are usually fairly... Uh, easy to work, or not easy in the sense that they're not complex, but they're possible to work out, right? And so if you sit down and you want ID and your opponent wants to ID, then you just get to cut the round out of both of your tournaments to benefit you mutually. And the mutual benefit is good, that's what should happen, but the fact that uh, now matches are less, tournaments are less decided by games of Netrunner, uh, I think is in general a net negative just because you, it's possible that you can play many fewer games now than you could under the old system like it's possible if you won three times uh, and I think someone did do that in the tournament if you won your first swept your first three rounds you could ID your next three and your opponents would also want to ID so you could potentially um, play half even if you didn't have a buy or anything which would disrupt things you could potentially play only half of your Swiss rounds and still have the best result, which is not bad from a taunt. Like, I think it's okay that people can do that because, you know, there's no, you shouldn't try and disallow it, I think, just uh, out of hand, but it would be better if the tournament system didn't allow for you to do that, didn't have that be by far the best option. Yeah, as in if the points distribution was such that that wasn't incentivized. Yes. Maybe if you play... Uh, yeah, let's leave that. Yeah, we'll leave the solutions to one side, but I think we can safely say, and I agree with you to Simon, that it wasn't great that the top eight was almost locked from two rounds out and we were safely ahead on points to the extent that we could just ID and get in. And I had a buy and id three rounds essentially um, because my second round I was matched up against a friend who I'd tested with quite heavily and we sort of I didn't want to if either of us won it would make it really hard for the other one to make the top eight so we Wilfie didn't agree with my decision in the sense that he thought it wasn't optimal to do it that way and it actually harmed our chances of making top eight which may or may not be true but I felt that in terms of from a morale perspective if you're on round if you're after round two looking like you're going to be pushing proverbial uphill to make top eight that's a lot more demoralizing than if it happens later so i decided to idea with a friend long story short in round two then one round three and four and i did round five and six which meant that i'd only really played two rounds of netrunner which was not ideal um and i would have liked to have been in a situation where i was incentivized to play more rounds later on because i enjoyed playing netrunner and the two rounds that i did actually play were the the, mo the most exciting rounds for me all day, rather than the ones where I was sitting around. Yeah, I agree. Um, 
So, uh, I think that pretty much covers the Swiss rounds. I mean, th- yeah, that was a very brief outline of my rounds. In terms of the matches that I did play in in those two um, rounds that I played, it was, I think, two Kate decks that were playing Mopus, which was not a great matchup for Sync, but I did manage to get there, which was good, using the Data Ravens and the 24-7 at appropriate times. I didn't kill anyone all day with Scorch, which I was pretty disappointed about because I, I do enjoy a bit of murder. But uh, being able to... The quantum predictive models were godsends in all games. So they are definitely a core part of the deck if you're looking at adapting the list I played, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend. But uh, if you are looking at doing that, then definitely don't take out the QPMs. Um, the On the other side, I think I played against an HB deck and a CTM deck. HB is not a great matchup for Wizard. I mean, it's okay, but if you don't draw the right cards, you can be pretty far behind. I did manage to just get there, um, despite some beefy ice that the deck doesn't deal particularly well with. Um, and against the CTM deck, I'd had so much practice against Wilfie that that worked out reasonably well for me, and I was able to pressure my opponent in the ways that I knew they didn't want me to, which was great. Um so that is pretty much the Swiss rounds for both of us. Then the top cut, Wilfie, how did that go for you? And we've actually got a question here also uh, from our listener, John, which was, what was the most surprising deck that you faced in the top cut? So if you can work that into your answer about your top cut, that would be great. I don't want to spoil too much because the videos will be up on the internet soon. Um, yep. But... I won some games which were fairly lucky for me to win. Uh, I lost my first game against Rob where the game was very close up until maybe turn 6 to turn 10, which is the time where we found that the CDM versus Wizard matchup usually skews one way in one person's favor. Um, and it was kind of slipping away, so I made the decision to just uh, go all in on medium and I hit, uh, hit 6 cards and missed, um, which is okay. Obviously, it's not like I hit 6 brand new cards and missed. But my medium got up to six counters on the last turn, and I didn't score an agenda, so then I died. Um, but that that was a bit disappointing to lose the first round, especially because I had chosen to play the wizard deck against CTM as opposed to playing CTM against Annie because I thought it was a better matchup, even though that's still, I think, the two worst common matchups for my two decks, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So Andy was the runner you didn't want to face, and CTM was the core yes. you didn't want to face. Um, yeah. So I, I, yeah, so I guess that was a bit disappointing, but then I won my next five rounds, I think, before the, four rounds before the finals. It was losing, I didn't realize how bad losing in the first round of the top eight was. Yeah. Until now, I'm like, I have to play how many rounds? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty miserable. Um, so that, that worked out reasonably well, and you ended up making it to the final. My, uh, top cut went really well. I, uh, the first game was not recorded, so I'll talk about it. Um, it was against a uh, local player, Sean, who was playing Temujin Andy, and the game worked out pretty much as I as it had during my testing, in that he had a Temujin early, he got all of his stuff set up, his rig was full, he had a, a turning wheel out, I was looking dead on the board, and he was on some massive amount of credits, and I managed to 24-7 close the counts, all seeing eye him which killed the turning wheel and got rid of his inevitability and also got rid of all of his credits and then meant that I was able to stabilize through a remote, through exchange of information and because I was higher in the Swiss standings, we actually tied on four points at the end of time um, and I went through into the winner's bracket, which was lucky. 
Um, but also, I guess I felt pretty vindicated at that point in terms of my deck choice because I had prepared specifically for that situation um, and it came up and I was able to get out of it, which was sweet. Yeah, and I just um, want to say quickly that um, it, it this kind of uh, touches upon a little bit how important it is if you're going to win a tournament to be very lucky. <laughs> like, like yeah. obviously preparation is very important that like you knew what you were going to do in that situation. But uh, still, you know, you need to have lots of things go right. You need to draw your outs. Like, knowing your outs is fine, but if you don't draw yeah. them... Then <laughs> yeah, knowing so what good. to do to win yeah. is one thing, but actually uh, being being granted the resources to do it is another totally different thing. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that one worked out pretty well. I then had... Uh, can't remember the order of the games actually but i ended up playing against uh rob and he was playing his andy again against my um sync deck and again i was able to um utilize the 24 7 and the tags to come back from a situation where i was quite far behind um utilize the qpms in remotes uh to tax him out quite heavily when he went chasing the thing that i'd put in there um but also then end up scoring an agenda myself um, and use the tag punishment cards, particularly the exchange of information as the the winning card, um, to essentially turntable my way into the last three points that I needed to win. So that was nice. So I got there in that game, and at that point I'd played two games against Andy with the sync deck in the top cut, which was effectively, as I said, exactly what I was preparing for and exactly what I'd played the deck for. So I was feeling really good about that. Um, I then had a wizard game. Who did I play my wizard game against? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was uh, Chris. I played against Chris's CTM. Yeah. Uh, so, Chris was playing a Museum of History, Mumba Temple, uh, Mumbad City Hall CTM deck. Yeah, the, the so he was... uh, descendant of the old um, Gagarin decks or whatever, Hot Top decks. Yeah, effectively. Although I don't think he was playing any Scorched Earths. Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't think he was, was too. But I had other tag punishment. Yeah. So that deck was quite difficult to fight. But again, with the Wizard deck, because I tested the CTM matchup so much against Wilfie, I felt reasonably confident with it, as long as I drew some of the hate cards. So the four hate cards that essentially were in the deck were Networking, uh, Two Slums, and a New Angeles City Hall. And an employee strike. Um, and an employee strike. Yep, so five cards. The New Angeles City Hall is the worst one of those, but it's the best in some situations. So if you have a particular start where you have wild side early and you have some resources and you want essentially from turns like three to seven to be safe from breaking news um, all-seeing eye, then having New Angeles City Hall is really, really great because otherwise that's the one way that they can come back and punish you really hard for that sort of start, which is the optimal start for your deck. So I wanted to have the the card in there to protect you when you do have the optimal start to actually be able to take advantage of it. Um, however, it doesn't help you in those first couple of turns when you're wanting to contest the remotes. So in those situations, you really want the networking to protect yourself from hard-hitting news on the backswing. Uh, you want the Solstice Slums so that the CTM ability doesn't trigger and you can stay ahead on economy and not get hard-hitting used, or you want Employee Strike again so this CTM ability doesn't trigger and you can hopefully protect yourself from getting hard-hitting used. So if you don't have any of those three cards um, on the first couple of turns, you can get put quite far behind. 
but thankfully for me, I did have the networking. Um, and that was worked out really well. I had the networking. I had an employee strike. I was even able to um, uh, employee strike. And then Chris played a targeted marketing to kill my employee strike and also name networking, which took out two of my hate cards, which was quite frustrating. But then I had the rumor mill as well in hand to play over the top of the targeted marketing, which again made my networking live, which was great. So that match up, that match went on for a long time. I did make one grievous error where I had a Faust in play and I inexplicably didn't break a turnpike that I ran through um, and it was in front of a quantum predictive model uh, and that didn't work out particularly well for me. Um, But I recovered from that and managed to win the game quite comfortably just by trashing all the remotes and not really caring about the ability because I had slums and employee strike and or um, uh, networking in hand. So that, that game worked out well and after those three matches two wins against Andy and the win against CTM, I ended up in the final. So, um, the next question that we have from our listeners was, um, how did you approach being paired up in the finals? This is actually a question from the Big Bad Wolf himself. Oh, the other mysterious panelist, or host, host rather. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, the mysterious host of the winning agenda, um, who asks, yeah, how did we approach being paired up in the finals? So, I guess... Uh, you, go first, you, you go first. Approach it, Wilfie. Oh, me. Okay. Um, it was it was really great. I think uh, we'd probably spoken about it in the middle of the Swiss rounds when it looked like we were both going to make yeah, top eight after, um, because we realised that we could after ID four. after yeah. round four. Yeah, we were sort of like, this is great. We did so much testing together, uh, tested the common matchups, and helped each other prepare. And now it looks like we're both going to make top eight. How great would it be if we yep. made the final? And also, um, I think I said it to you maybe five times leading up to the tournament. Maybe more. Huh? Yeah. Ma- yeah. Maybe all the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it was it was a dream come true in that sense that we had been talking about it and really wanting it to happen. And then we both made the final. And when you want, you know, when you go to a tournament with friends, you want them to do well. And if they come to you at the end of the round and they're like, I won both games, it actually makes you feel yeah. as great as if you won exactly. both games. Um, so seeing someone who you've been through the whole day with and you've been through all the lead up with and, you know, we've been to so many tournaments together, store champs, nationals, regionals over Et the last couple yeah. of years, um, to then see you be successful and make the final as well was just as good as having two of you <laughs> in the final. So I was, I was really happy. I like that analogy. Um, yeah. Um, so that was really great. Sorry, I'll just turn off this phone. Um, yeah, so it was uh, as good as having two of me in the finals, which was great. How did, uh, how did you feel? Uh, yeah, let me rephrase that. (laughs) Basically, the ideal situation (laughs) is for as many people that you know as possible to do well. And so to have a situation... In the finals of the tournament where someone you like is guaranteed to win is uh, a f- pretty amazing feeling. Yeah, so uh, when we actually got to playing in the finals, I think we were both just pretty stoked to be there. Although, you know, it, it always is nice yeah, to win. Um, <laughs> I certainly and want, I'm sure we both certainly want the prizes, but yeah, definitely the, it was much more relaxed than I would have been playing someone else. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the first game that we played was my runner against CTM. So I was playing Wizard against the CTM. Uh, wasn't um, it the other way around? 
Oh, no, because that, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. Uh, and your start was double bankers in the remote? Yeah, I can't remember whether I mulliganed or not, because, like, I, I had already told you about my plan that I mulliganed any hand without the political, um, basically any yeah. hand without the political, and so I'm sure after having, if I kept, after having kept you, it must have been, uh, despondent. Yeah, no, I was, um, yeah. I, I can't remember if you mulliganed either, but I know I mulliganed um, because I prioritized having one of the hate one of the hate cards that worked proactively on turn one, so the employee strike, one of the two songs yeah. of the networking, um, and I didn't get any of them in my opening hand, and I didn't have any of them in my Mulligan, yeah. revised hand either. Um, but I did have uh, Wildside and Chronotype, so that start is good in most matchups, but not good in the CTM matchup if you do have to contest the assets on the first couple of turns. So when you played out two remotes on turn one, I had a choice to make as to whether, because I had no economy cards in hand, I drew first click to try and find a gamble, but I found a dirty laundry. And I didn't, considering I would have had to have taken the tag from trashing one of your assets, plus the fact that I didn't want to dirty laundry your assets themselves in case they were Jackson's on turn one, um... The dirty laundry was not a great draw at that point, and a gamble would have been much better. So I opted instead to take the not so sure gamble of gaining a credit and playing out the two assets. Uh, sorry, the the two resources to stop myself from being able to be hard hitting used, um, and hopefully to be able to recover some economy next turn and contest the assets. Um, that didn't work out well because they were both bankers, um, which put you so far ahead on money that the Dirty Laundry was never going to let me compete unless I managed to also draw some gambles in the next couple of turns off the um, wild side. That didn't quite happen. So sort of once it got to turn three and I was quite far behind on money and I sort of didn't really have any relevant cards in hand other than yeah. medium and there was an open R&D, I just sort of thought, well, I, I could grind this out. And I think... I mean, perhaps if it was another opponent, um, I wouldn't have been so happy-go-lucky and I would have just grounded out. Hey, but don't, when I had a game on my sleeve... Don't let the uh, listeners know that we don't always, like, you know. <laughs> I'm sure you know what I mean. I know what you mean. Yeah, so um, one, I had a game up my sleeve and two, I was exhausted, neither of which are good things to <laughs> Yeah, this is so a cautionary I, um, tale, to take into not, account, uh, you know, uh, great. Great decision making. Yeah, not a, not a, yeah, not a coaching session. So don't don't listen to this. But um, yeah, I certainly took those two things very slightly into account. Um, but I also thought um, that, in all honesty, the best chance that I had to win that game from that point was to luck out on R and D um, with medium, and not necessarily luck out, but to pressure R and D because I had Faust, David, and medium in hand. Yeah, the the only realistic po- uh, strategy I thought that I had to win there that didn't involve a really long grind and me getting really lucky. Um, and I guess I'll like, explain why it would be a really long grind. Firstly, I had to trash the bankers that were already there, plus the Sensi that was down by that point, um, I think, plus pads that were coming. Um, then I had to contend with hard-hitting news, which I didn't have the cards in hand to deal with. So assuming that I got through all of that, my wild side and my chronotype would be dead. I would have no credits. I had no... Daily cast, sure gamble, or dirty laundry in hand at that point. Um, 
and very little ability to recover. It was so unlikely that I would then ever be able to contest remotes and actually score agendas proactively. Um, I would probably be tagged by hard-hitting news anyway, so the tag punishment would be live. So the it, it seems to me that I had just as much, if not more, chance of winning by playing the medium that I had in hand, attacking the open R&D as many times as possible, and then hoping that the only ice that Wolfie would have access to was either something that I could break easily with David, like Resistor or um, Wraparound, um, or tag I, tagging ice that would actually do nothing to me if I was going tag me anyway. Um, and you can only really afford to go tag me if you're already at three medium counters. So the fact that the R&D was open would mean that I was already at three medium counters, I'm already three, seeing three cards. If the next turn I get, you know, say one tagging ice and, and a resistor, I can afford to take another turn going through that because I'm getting up to six counters off the David, um, six yeah. counters on the medium, which is a lot of cards that you're seeing, plus the wizard trash means that you're probably going to see more than six unique cards. Um, so yeah, I thought that was a, a reasonable um, path to victory at that point, and I think I stole two agendas on the first turn when I ran and got up to three counters, so that was a good start. Um, but then unfortunately, the ice that I saw with that medium dig was a toll booth and something else relevant. Yeah, and a resistor, which I think. Much, which meant that you yeah. only had one. The, David only get, gave you one uh, access. Yeah, instead of three, um, which is obviously significantly worse. Um, and then I, yeah, I got up, got one more access. I got up to four counters on the medium, I think, um, but then could basically not get in a game and before Wilfie had the chance to purge. And then once you're purged out at that point, you've got no real way to get back into yeah, the game. Yeah, except, I mean, you could, you still had more accesses before the game ended, but not enough for any realistic chance of winning. No. Um, so that, that gamble didn't pay off, uh, which was unfortunate. Um, and then we went on to game two. And unfortunately, the the decision that I'd made in terms of which decks to bring that I mentioned earlier, where I'd relied a little more on the surprise factor, uh, the fact that my opponent wouldn't be comfortable playing against my deck, um, the fact that they wouldn't necessarily know that I was playing Scorched Earth, but also wouldn't necessarily know how to deal with my remotes, given that I had a lot of different threats in Pricet, QPM, uh, the 3 for 2s, uh, Sansan and Jackson, all of which you need to deal with in different ways. Um, that All of that um, that would ordinarily have worked in my favor in every other matchup in terms of the unknown quantities for the runner, Wilfie actually knew exactly what I had in my deck um, and how to deal with each of those cards exactly. And once uh, someone who is a very good runner player, which Wilfie is, knows exactly what the uh, options are for what a card can be in a remote server, they can work out whether it's an optimal play to run it or not. And credit to Wilfie, he made all of the optimal plays, he made all of the right decisions. I was unable to, despite the fact that I did score two breaking users early, which turned on my 24-7, um, I was unable to leverage any of the um, power of the remotes to make my to make Wilfie run through them um, to actually give myself a victory. I, didn't, I don't think I even actually set up a remote because I drew a lot of operations and not many ice, which was unfortunate in itself, but um, I guess I, that... In another game against another opponent, that would have worked out well for me because I did have the 24-7 consulting visit and Scorched with a Jackson on the table at one point in the game, uh, which would have allowed me to double Scorched and beat another opponent um, if I was able to keep them tagged. But Wilfie 
stayed higher in credits. He knew how to play against the tagging NB index, and he never went below three cards in hand. So I couldn't um, 24-7 scorched him either. So unfortunately, I couldn't get there, but it was fortunate for Wolfie. It sure was. Um, but yeah, no, those games were very interesting to watch, I think. Uh, and uh, they will be up on the internet at some point. So hopefully what we were saying will make more sense then. Yeah. Um, so that... I think covers both of our days and how we went, and uh, it was really great to come first. It sure was. It was fantastic, uh, and thanks to everyone for all their support. Yeah. Um, the other, I guess, just a couple of questions to finish off from our uh, Patreon supporters. Um, we had one more question from our listener Max, who asked, "Do you feel that?" Uh, DLR is a strong deck still. Uh, and then second question to follow up on that, do you think that traditional Breaker Anarch with Temujin is a solid deck? Uh, yeah, I think we... I, I touched on that uh, a little in the first segment we did. Um, it, with regards to DLR deck, it did wallop me uh, in the San San finals. Uh, so I lost in the semis yep. to it, and it wasn't even close to being close. Um, but No. I think Sync does have a much better matchup against it, and that was one of the reasons that I did right. Sync also, is that I thought more people would be on Yeah, DLR. but I, in general, I think, as I said before, DLR was where before you were, I think, one turn faster than most other decks. Now you're one turn slower, where you have to... If they can really force you to um, contest their remotes, I don't think it's very good for DLR. Like, it's hard for you to get into a situation where you can effectively contest the remotes, um, because you really... Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this, your success is contingent on landing a siphon before they can set up uh, any board presence. If you can do that, then it's, yeah. the game can snowball very easily from there. But if you can't, like, if you can land siphon and you can get to about parity, you know, they have some board, you have some board, it's okay. But if they're already ahead by the time you get the opportunity to siphon, it's really hard to win, I think. Well, it's like a more... Um all-in and more powerful version of the medium strategy that I had against you in that yeah. finals match, right? Yeah. Like, you're, you're more all-in on it. DLR is much better than medium because you don't actually need to make success for us to do it. So the other thing that we did on Nationals Weekend after all that song and dance was over uh, was that we ran the top... Uh, sorry. Was that we ran the finals for our Sansan circuit, which was the S- support Australian netrunner send an Aussie North uh, ANRPC circuit that we ran in Australia. So it was the first time we'd run an ANRPC circuit here in Australia, and we had people from all across the country participate. In fact, we had Melbourne is where we are from in Australia, which is one of the large cities, uh, and most of the qualifiers took place in Melbourne. There were a couple of qualifiers interstate, and there was one that we ran through Jinteki.net, and it was actually one of the qualifiers from our um, Jinteki.net qualifier who ended up winning. Um, oh, no, actually, sorry, Josh you Josh qualified through our uh, one of our interstate ones. Anyway, it was someone who's not from Melbourne who ended up winning the event, which was great. So congratulations to Josh. And we had a great turnout. We had uh, 12, 13 players actually playing. Unfortunately, there was a bye because we had an uneven number. Few people couldn't make it down who'd qualified, but 13 was a great uh, number to have at the event. Wilfie ended up making top four, and we gave out over $350 in prizes. So it was a great day. Thanks to everyone who supported it, all the stores out there who ran a qualifier. It was really fantastic. 
Um, and we have some thoughts from one of our uh, avid listeners and good friends from Melbourne, Crushed Guava, who wanted us to mention a few things about the ARPC San San Finals. Number one, he wanted to say thank you to Spags, wherever you are out there, Spags. Thank you for the beautiful ARPC dice. John was so excited to get them. I don't think he's ever been more excited for anything else in his life. Uh, in fact, before we started recording this episode, uh, Wilfie said to me, that he thinks John is more excited about those dice than Wilfie ever has been about anything in his entire life. So thank you, Spags, for providing one of our friends with that much happiness. Uh, the other thing was that John is a... Oh, sorry, Crushed Guava. I should uh, keep using his pseudonym. Sorry, John. I think I've given away your identity here. Um, crushed Guava is very big on nutrition. Um, he's a strong believer in being uh, well-fed before a tournament. Uh, and he had a plan before Nationals that he was going to eat a bun me, uh, and that was going to set him up well for the day. Then just before he went to buy his bun me, he decided he was going to get a Chinese pancake instead. It was terrible. He didn't enjoy it. He threw half of it out, and it ruined his day. Uh, he didn't do well at Nationals, and we, as a group, have decided that it was all the fault of the bun me. Uh, he then, the next day, actually did get a bun me in the morning, and then he got his uh, deep-fried chicken for lunch that he had planned for months beforehand that he was going to do at Nationals. He ended up doing that at the San San Finals, and he made top four. So if that doesn't tell you that good nutrition and sticking to your plans it helps you do well at tournaments, I don't know what does. Um, so well done, John, on sticking to your uh, nutritional plans for the second day, despite the fact that deep-fried chicken doesn't sound that nutritious. Uh, he also wanted us to mention that he played a game of Race for the Galaxy with us, and it was my first game of Race for the Galaxy that I'd ever played, and he wanted to know my thoughts on it. I thought it was a good game. I enjoyed it. Wolfie's uh, run me through Eminent Domain a few times before, and Race for the Galaxy, I think, is the genesis of Eminent Domain. Uh, so it was like playing, like going back and playing the, the bigger, older, more complex version of the game you already enjoy. So I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you, John, and uh, thanks to all of you who've listened this week. Uh, this has been episode 99 of The Winning Agenda, where we'll be back next week with the massive 100th episode spectacular featuring host Brian Holland, the big bad wolf himself, returning to the host chair. Uh, I've been Jesse Marshall. We've been The Winning Agenda. You can get in touch with us at thewinningagenda at gmail.com, uh, on Twitter, at winningagenda. You can check us out on Facebook at The Winning Agenda. Uh, and if you have enjoyed what we've done this week and every other week for the last 99 weeks, and if you want to see us keep going, uh, you can throw a few shekels our way at www.patreon.com slash The Winning Agenda. Thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for supporting us uh, already. And thank you for sending in your questions as well, those Patreon supporters who did so. Uh, so thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thanks, guys. 